I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Welcome back, everyone. And today we are discussing album number 13 on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. And this album is The Velvet Underground and Nico by The Velvet Underground. If you follow us on social media, you know that uh, Mike and I admitted several weeks ago, I guess now, that neither one of us had any idea about this album. We were sort of brand new to it. And so we put out a request on various social media spaces saying, does anyone want to help us out? Does anyone know anything about this album? And um, my friend Bob Brown got in touch and said, it's actually an album that's pretty important to him. And uh, that's the best way to get yourself included as a guest on (laughs) this podcast is to just simply raise your hand and say, I'm interested. (laughs) Yes. Um, So Bob and I met uh, a few years ago. We were both uh, Mennonite ministers in Allegheny Mennonite Conference here in sort of western Pennsylvania. Um, Bob uh, transitioned away from this area, but we've stayed in touch a little bit. We're both, uh, I guess, Mennonite ministers who think outside the box a little bit and have gotten um, some projects together, kind of pushing the denomination on some of its traditional stances. And uh, and for that reason, I've, I've feel like he's a, a kindred spirit, even though I don't know him all that well, but someone I really respect and admire in the work that he does and this calling that he has. But the other really cool dynamic about Bob is that for many years, I think even longer than you've been a minister, you've been a DJ. Um, and so you've got this musical background, uh, not only in appreciating uh, the Velvet Underground, but in, in sort of that DJing uh, dance music world that's also very different than the background that Mike and I uh, uh, come to this with. And, and I think yeah. for both of those reasons, it's going to be uh, really valuable to have you here on the podcast with us today. So thanks so much, Bob, for, for taking yeah. the time to do this and for being here with us. Yeah, well, th- thanks for having me. I, uh, I've i always uh, have experienced the same kindred spirit with you, uh, Ben, and the work you do uh, in State College has always been uh, something that excites me that's happening in our church. So, Yeah. I think we need those people at the margins kind of, uh, you know, someone once told me it, it, it takes a lot to steer a big ship and the change mm. happens very, very slowly, but, yeah. um, yeah. you need people to push that wheel. <laughs> um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I was born in 1976. So that gives you some frame of kind of how old I, I am and was, and, uh, you know, music and sort of alternative music, uh, which included, a lot of music that stemmed from a Velvet Underground was really important to me during my high school days. Um, at some point during that time, I, I did uh, transition to uh, like 94, 93. Uh, I graduated high school in 94. Um, transitioned into this kind of techno DJ role, uh, which is a very specific subgenre of what we would now call electronic dance music, even though that's not a term anybody would have heard of in 1994. Uh, but so, yeah, so I, I uh, spent time in that in that uh, world, uh, lived in Philadelphia for a while, produced music and DJed. And then, yeah, and then at some point I became a Mennonite pastor. So uh, it's been a... <laughs> as, as DJs do normally as you, do. As you do, yeah. Right, right. So, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, Mike and I were born in 82. 
too. So um, we're not that much younger than you, but I think there is something about the decade that you were born in mm-hmm. and how you understand mm-hmm. music. Yeah. Um, so even just those several years probably will make will mean that there are some differences in how the kind of music that we digested as younger adults and um, and where we ended up today. And I've always had this strange little urge, a strange a piece of me, and this may be part of what <laughs> drives uh, this, it might drive my life a little more than it should. But um, this desire to be um, sort of on the on the margins, on the on the edges, like hmm. um, <clears throat> so that sort of drives the music that I produce, the music that I DJ, the music that I listen to. Um, you know, and that may be part of this. Uh, you know, this kind of relationship I have with the Velvet Underground may may stem from that. And the kind of uh, pastor you ended up becoming. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Well, I'm curious, Mike. Is it is it an album that you had uh, any sense of before we began this project? I recognize the banana. Yeah, <laughs> I think that might be my <laughs> extent of my. I, the Velvet Underground as, as a name was something I had in my mind as yes. an important band. No, I'm beyond the banana, which I mean the that picture I had seen and knew that it was an album of music, but I really couldn't place it anywhere. And I had heard of the Velvet Underground, and somehow I feel I knew that Lou Reed was was in it. Okay, and that's it. I had never listened to it. I didn't know any of the any music from any of their albums at all. And I somehow had a feeling that I thought it was like punk or, or kind of a predecessor to punk, which of course it is. So I kind of expected a bit of that kind of raw, uh, kind of, yeah. I don't know. You know, that sense, like punk uh, in its essence is, is, you know, it's not polished. It's, it's so much about rebellion. It's not about, even knowing how to play your music, it's just a big middle finger to anybody who yeah. uh, who says anything about you. And certainly, there's a lot of that in this album. So I was right on, but I didn't know what that would sound like. Yeah. Uh, so, so pushing play the first time, I had I had no idea. And even yeah. halfway through, I still had no idea. Uh, <laughs> um, and that's not necessarily negative because yeah. Uh, and 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 I don't I don't want to. I don't want to poo-poo it right away because it was yeah. very different. And, you know, I might have played my hand a little bit on some mm, of the comments mm. I've shared already, but I want to say right off the bat, I don't think this is a bad album. So I don't want you guys going, <laughs> oh boy, here my here comes Mike. He's going to just <laughs> over it again um, because that's not the case. But really, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, Bob, that you can help me appreciate it more and help me understand really the one thing I'm missing and I hope you can shed a little more light on this is its impact on all the music that came after it. Because anything I read, that's all anyone says, but I'm having a hard time grabbing some of the specifics. People are saying, you know, the one great um, quote, I can't remember who said it. I think it was Brian Eno said, you know, it, it wasn't a successful album. It only sold 30,000 copies, but every single one of the people who bought them started a band. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah. Uh, yeah. So so that's the impression I get from this album that it's monumentally influential, and I feel so embarrassed that for someone who says he loves music and music history, yeah. 
has no experience with right. it, but everybody else in the world does supposedly. <laughs> and everybody who's ever made important music, listen to this album. So yeah. I'm, I'm just having a hard time piecing that together. And hopefully by the end of the next 30 minutes, no pressure, you can, uh, <laughs> you can shed some light there. Well, and I'm wondering if there's a generational uh, hiccup that, that we might be a part of, or something that happens, um, for folks who are just a little bit older, we've mentioned, I've mentioned this now to a couple of friends. One was, uh, Jason Crane, who we recorded with last week. Um, you know, right. Jason's about 10 years older than us. And he right away was like, Oh man, that's, that's such an important album. Mm-hmm. I just mentioned it to a friend who's staying with us this week, who's the same age as us. And he said, Oh yeah, that was the band that slash was in just a few years ago. Right. He oh, had oh no. Velvet revolver, oh. <laughs> uh, not velvet underground. And so like, there's something in the, the decade that we were born where, I don't know. It almost had become this forgotten piece of seminal material that inspired everyone, but, but didn't have the lasting power. And maybe some of that is the, the dynamic of, you know, even when it was released, it was banned from radio stations. It was banned from record stores. It was, it was just too edgy for that moment in time. Um, and so it didn't get the airplay. It didn't get the, the lasting power and the longevity uh, that some of these other albums that were, that were tackling did. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious too, how this conversation tonight will, will shape and influence that. I think there, there's, there's these multiple conversations I'm, I'm processing as we talk about it. Um, yeah. If we name an album as good, right. Just because of its, uh, whatever it's, uh, originality or it's right. It's, it's, it's this kind of new thing, right. Um, you know, there's a, there's a limitation to naming, to naming an album that way, because then you have to really actually dig into what the context is and who was doing what at the time. And right. So how, how, in, how, how, uh, creative and new and right. You can't say this is something that sprouted out of nowhere unless you know the ground it was growing out of. And, um, yeah. and I struggle to, <clears throat> I think, uh, so I, I, I was, I remember it was maybe like three or four years ago, maybe longer. The beach boys were on the Grammys and, um, it was like kind of one of the last times that happened. They, they had some sort of tribute and they did good vibrations. Right. And like, there's this, there's this, they're doing like four part harmonies and they got the vibraphone out. I mean, not the vibraphone, the, uh, uh, theremin, they got theremin out doing like, right stuff. And, yep. um, <laughs> and, uh, and I, at that at that point, I had like someone had explained like this this record was out there. You know what I mean? When Good Vibrations came yeah. out, it was out there, and I was like, "Are you yeah. kidding me?" You know, like that's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. You know, my six year old just put on Rage Against the Machine today, um, <laughs> right? So like, <laughs> so like I'm like, "What do you mean? Like this is out there? Like my six year old likes Rage, right?" So. Um, and he chose it. He was like looking through the iPad and picked it up. So, um, so there's just this kind of, how do you even understand? And then there's this next level too, for me of also understanding, like, as we talk about our rock and roll, uh, which stems out R and B, which right, right. Um, which is black music, which is sort of music that had been, um, I mean, there's appropriated or exploited, you know, depending on how you want to use that language, like how much of what, um, the Velvet Underground that was, was right. Like in some level, what Elvis was doing was exciting because 
he was a white dude. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, there are pieces of it at some level. Like what was, what, what parts of this kind of the rock and roll for me, which is what the, the deep rock and roll kind of European sun and waiting for my man songs are the, the things that speak to me on this. And mm. how much of that <clears throat> is basically just, yeah. you know, is that just, is that just blues? Is it just white boy blues? So that's the other thing that I wrestle with too, is we talk about this album, like this album was awesome because it was so, you know, new or original. Like I don't think yeah. any of us, any, uh, I mean, we can look at Rolling Stone and say, Hey, you guys know what's new and in, new and original. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then at the same point, you know, you, there's that, you know, wrestling with the fact that, uh, I don't know how high, how many, how many albums deep do you have to go before you get one that was written by people of color? Um, on that list you, you guys might have already had that conversation well so far we've only hit one and that was number six marvin gaze what's going on oh that's but right I, You're, yeah i will say i don't think we hit another one for a while yeah. well jim uh jimmy oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. number yeah, 15 yeah, yeah. Uh, miles davis at kind of blue number 12 oh yeah, yeah, yeah. okay good so there's a few there's a few okay it but it is it is uh less yeah. than and it takes uh it takes all the way until 30 to get to a, a female lead. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a biased <laughs> list and lots of, lots of reasons. Right, right. And there's all the reasons and historical stuff that, that, that yeah. play into that, too. So yep. Don't even get my wife started about <laughs> how low Joni Mitchell is on this list. And she's, she's, that's number 30, and she's going to join us. And I might have to be sick that episode. <laughs> Uh, and you guys could just do that on your own because <laughs> oh man it's going to be really good but it's going to be intense yeah yeah, yeah. Good. but i i mean but here's the thing I, oh you oh. should probably cut that or she'll kill me when you listen <laughs> oh that means it's totally staying in so um oh shoot i would shut my big mouth i don't i mean for me i i guess but but what i would say is but this if i had to list like this would make it in my top 20 albums, right? Like of my own personal preference, I think. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think more in terms of songs. There's this other dynamic that we've been struggling with, which is does popularity need to be a part of the equation too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, this was not very popular. It might have been influential, but it was not music that played everywhere. It was played, you know, by multiple generations and... Yeah, all of that. All of that goes into this conversation. And, and even as Mike and I did an episode where we re-ranked the top 10, um, even though we were born the exact same year and have very similar upbringings, our lists are different. And um, and we had different reasons for picking things and moving things. And they had different elements of what was popular and different elements of, you know, this is just the thing that I want to put on today and listen to. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge anytime you yeah. make these, these things. <laughs> We'll get into some of the details of it. Okay, so just to put it in a specific place in time, this album was released March 12, 1967, uh, which when I listen to it, I find fascinating. Um, It was written by Lou Reed, mostly. John Cale gets a couple credits along with Lou Reed. And as we talked about popularity, this did not chart... Well, compared to the other albums we've listened to so far, it was number 43 in the UK and number 129 in the US, which again is interesting because they they were out of New York, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Bob, but but they recorded, I think, most of this in New York and they were from New York. Yeah, I I would Uh, figure, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it did better in the UK. Maybe they 
we're able to uh, mm. associate with it more. And for sales uh, to this date, somewhere around half a million. So uh, from what I could research, and some of those numbers are hard to come across, and it was hard to find U.S. numbers, but somewhere around half a million. And as Brian Eno said, it only initially sold 30,000, but there's a band that started from each one of those copies. Um, this band was produced by Andy Warhol, which is, I think, interesting to note. It was kind of a project that he was doing uh some of his art and then also in music as well. He was involved. I think it was only this album that he produced and then they went kind of on their own after that, but we can get into that. And then my favorite part of details, and I hope that someone did more research than I did on this was the album cover, um, which again, I've seen this picture. So it's a, it's Andy Warhol's art. It's got his name on it uh-huh. mm-hmm. and it's that yellow, banana peel now if i'm understanding correctly on the original release that was a sticker that you could peel off mm-hmm. right and then underneath it is is a naked banana mm-hmm. and kind of a fleshy colored mm-hmm. naked yeah, banana too. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. there's a provocative sticker on the sort of shrink wrap too right like peel at your own risk i forget what the actual peel slowly and see peel slowly and oh. see that's much better than Whoa. people at your own risk. So, um, yeah, in an era before uh, the internet, I'm imagining the temptation of like trying to figure out: Do I peel the sticker off, be stuck with something that's worse than what I got here? <laughs> uh, do I get a friend to do it to their copy? Um, it would have been a weird, a weird test of your, uh, I don't know, your stomach, I guess. To, Try and figure out what direction you go. Uh, I'm not sure if I would have peeled the sticker. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> no, what about they, you guys? Would you have done it? Uh, yes. <laughs> you would have peeled? Absolutely. I have to know what's under there. <laughs> I, can't believe, I can't believe that you wouldn't have. You definitely would have. I, here's what I think I would have done. I would have peeled a third of it and seen the like weird pink banana underneath and just tried to stick it back up <laughs> <laughs> and hope your mom doesn't see um and hope my mom oh boy. Yeah, and hope my mom doesn't see the, i don't think she would have been thrilled with this album coming yeah. in the door well, it's just a anyway. banana it's just a banana <laughs> um it's just a banana the, uh, I, I i don't know i i actually ended up buying the box set uh that's called peel slowly mm. and see that's like uh kind of their whole their whole uh, catalog, and that has uh, that has a color form cool. banana on it. So it's like it sticks back on. Or is that what it's called? Color forms, like you know the things that stick on windows. They're sort of plasticky. Oh, so you can oh, just yeah. peel it yeah, and yeah. put it back on. Like you just you have to. It's an oh, inconsequential nice. peeling. <laughs> there was um, I don't know. I don't know why I'm thinking about this. I might just cut it out later, but. I, for a while when we were growing up, the different record stores would put the the promotional stickers. Um, some of them would do it on the shrink wrap and some of them would do it on the jewel case. And I remember having this tension oh. of like, do I buy the copy that says, uh, I don't know, 
something like our newest album ever or something that's going to get torn off when I take off the shrink rack or do I want the one that's going to hold that sort of forever as the sticker on the, on the jewel case. And I remember feeling conflicted about that. So that's maybe what gives me pause when I think about being faced with this choice of the sticker. <laughs> well, I have, I, I can relate. I have a, it's actually a joy division album um, that uh, was only available on import when I bought it. Um, that's a weird little yeah. thing that doesn't, exist anymore and um it was uh it had a little made in england sticker on the back and i was debating whether to peel it off or not so oh yeah 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 so it's like half it's like i peel i started on a corner and then i stopped so (laughs) (laughs) that's funny what did was this uh, banana image something that warhol had done previously was it made for the album do we know that yeah uh, you know, I mean, I don't know how much you know Warhol, but he just uh, the, the the originality, like, <laughs> and Warhol are kind of like like he intentionally everything he made at that at that stage of his career when he had gotten to this point, you know, when he really dove into this pop art thing, like it was everything was intentionally derivative. So this notion of something new yeah. is kind of a it's it, it's it's weird to kind of bring that up in a conversation. I don't know. Like to me, as I think about Warhol was purposefully (laughs) like his work was purposefully derivative of himself, of Campbell's of Marilyn, whatever, like it was. So, yeah. Yeah. He's sort of, yeah, he's an artist, but it, I know it also starts to get into this weird kind of stamping out art or like art becoming mass produced in the midst of popularity. And, uh, and he sort of leans in there rather than doing what a lot yeah. of artists do, which is pull back. Um, there's a note uh, on the Wikipedia page for this album that says MGM actually paid uh, extra to, to come up with a machine that was capable of stamping out these album mm. covers that had a sticker uh, on it. So it, it sort of added to the the financial <laughs> collapse of this album. It, you know, it had additional print costs associated with it for this weird uh, Warhol idea and design. And when it didn't sell, I'm sure they were thinking like, what have we done? We've, we've paid extra yeah. to put this thing on the shelves and no one wants it. Um, <laughs> yeah, really fascinating. Yeah, there's a well. I don't. I don't know. I mean, in uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, exists the Andy Warhol Museum, and there's sort of a, a little section oh. dedicated hmm. to the weirdness that is Andy Warhol plus Velvet Underground. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like a little. It's a. It's, it's oh, not cool. a little. It's a super trippy uh, excursion within the space with you know music and video and cameras and stuff. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I, I, if you have any fascination with that's awesome. Um, sort of that huh. that time period and those people, it's definitely a. I'm preaching at Pittsburgh Mennonite this Sunday. Maybe I need to make an extended yeah, trip. Yeah, you should go. go. It's, a, it's a very wonderful. It's a very wonderful mm. museum if you if you uh, are into weird art. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, there's a back cover controversy too, right? This was not just a, a weird front album cover, but. Um, the back cover had a lawsuit associated with it. Uh, the 
the back of the album has the band performing live, but there's an image kind of projected uh, behind them. The image was of an actor, Eric Emerson, who sued the band. He was uh, apparently sort of hard up for money and figured he'd uh, sue the band to get some money for this unauthorized use of his image. And uh, the the weird thing was uh, MGM pulled the albums off the, the record store shelves to replace the back cover rather than giving into his, his lawsuit. <laughs> and so we've got this... F- funky front cover weird back cover that then gets pulled and redone and airbrushed out um it just must have been uh something that record executives were were really scratching their heads over the entire time just a pr nightmare yeah you would imagine (laughs) yeah and i'm sure they would have been fine with all of those things had it sold well yeah exactly right it would have been just worth it yeah absolutely (laughs) absolutely uh the the album kind of feels like it dates it um you know it doesn't we've talked about some of the album covers so far that that feel timeless this this warhol print kind of puts this album in a time capsule in a way that i don't think any of the other things that we've talked about do um it's really fascinating what an image can can transport you to like that yeah even before really reading that it was andy warhol and and not of course not reading his name on there but just seeing the banana my brain was going oh yeah is that is that like an andy warhol piece kind of looks like something he would have done so right away you know his art is so recognizable just that style which is pretty fascinating if you think about it because it's very simple it's not like it's not like it would be that hard to make that type of art Mm -hmm. but he did it first and he did it best i think and so everyone knows when they see something with that kind of look, they know it's him or at least somebody who's replicating his style. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty special. I think for someone who's not, I'm not really, I don't really study art at all. I'm not very familiar with a lot of art, Uh, but for even me to recognize it, that's kind of cool. And that certainly does put this album in a very specific place in time, even to the untrained eye, Absolutely, uh, which is, which is unique. And you're right, Ben, it does, does date it. But it also makes it special, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Bob, usually at this time, you know, we talk about the tracks. And depending on the album, we don't mention every track. And I don't think I'm going to go through and list every track. But I'm wondering, uh, do you have any favorites or some that when you listen to the album really jump out to you? Or you just want to talk about every single one because you love it so much? (laughs) (laughs) No, No, I mean... It's funny because for me, part of the story is, and this is my understanding, uh, is that uh, Nico uh, right. uh, was part of this album because of Andy Warhol, right? Yes. So, so at some point, I, I understand that she kind of uh, got a little shoehorned in there or um, that there was some sort of, you know, at some point when, when Andy Warhol wants to help you with your album, you go, okay, you know, <laughs> um, sounds good. Uh, you know, you, you, I'll take that. And, um, and I feel like there's pieces of it that were sort of shaped a little bit more, um, that, you know, the kind of, uh, as I was reading some of the notes as we were, we were all discussing sort of the more kind of sixties, um, flower children kind of feel like those songs to me are, are ones that I kind of tolerate on this album, you know, Hmm. um, you know, like, 
uh, all tomorrow's parties are just, uh, just drags on and on. And, um, <laughs> you know, Sunday morning, like it's cute cause, uh, cause I'm a pastor, I guess. And like <laughs> just title, you know, but, um, but for me, you know, it's like, I'm waiting for my man, for, for the man, uh, run, run, run. Um, and European sun, like those ones and, and just kind of push, you know, they just have that kind of. When that bass line kicks in on on European Sun, it's just this. Just kind of pulled into this chaos with this sort of this sort of funky running bass line, and then all of a sudden there's just you know it sounds like eight people just making as much noise as possible, even though there's four. Um, so so for me, there's just kind of you know I'm waiting for a man just this kind of. Do, 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 you know this kind of jam that just kind of goes yeah. um it just pulls you in there's just sort of this this force this momentum to it that that i feel and i don't necessarily get that on on the uh, on all the songs you know like uh um so yeah that's that's where i kind of kind of struggle with the the track list is there's these songs that just really stand out and other ones i just sort of i just sort of get through you yeah. know yeah, it's it's interesting how much the genre sound changes from track to track. Um, you, yeah, you mentioned that sort of uh, uh, flower child sound, femme fatale, especially is this like almost lullaby kind of song. But it's stacked right next time, waiting for the yeah. man, which is like like you said, has that driving beat and pulse to it. Um, you were gonna say something. Yeah, that song I'm waiting for the man is sandwiched between. And, and the, the term I use is the hippy-dippy mm-hmm. sound yeah. um, of Sunday morning and all tomorrow's parties. Very kind of, I just imagine someone moving their hands up and down with their eyes closed in a field of daisies yeah. <laughs> uh, and everybody dancing slowly in a circle. You know, like um, I was confused by the dichotomy between these two very different sounds just going yeah. back and forth, you know, to hear and, and like... Uh, yeah, like oh, just so much of it. The Black Angels' death song was so mm. dissonant and and scraping yeah. and grating at times against against you know the Glockenspiel at the beginning. Uh, it's like, what's going on here? And and <laughs> part part of that is intriguing, but part of it is like, did they have? Was there any? Uh, was there any intention in this, or was it just like, well, we've got eleven <laughs> tracks now. Uh, we got eleven's <laughs> yeah, yeah. enough, right? Well, they don't really sound the same. Well, we're ready. You know, yeah. like I don't know. I, I, I can you put any sense to that? I mean, yeah. because men, as you've as you've expressed, Bob, many of them they don't yeah. fit at all together. That doesn't mean they don't yeah. belong. No, I mean, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. what I'm saying. But they don't, but they're not similar funny, at all. I, the, the, the thing that popped into my mind, uh, the first part is I, I just want to say, like, the Black Angels deck song is is just this. It's a masterpiece for me. Like, like I just, I mm. I mean, it's just this crazy little thing. You know, it's just this crazy thing. And I, I know there's other songs like it, but I don't know anything like it, right? Um, like, it's just, right, it, like right. you said, it's screeching. It's this crazy beat poetry going on and um you know a lot of <clears throat> maureen tucker she was a drummer a lot of songs she was just using a snare that was it it was and that's um so like <laughs> that was it she had a snare maybe some brushes and that's it um so it's a, that that kind of such stripped down madness um that way um 
And then, so anyways, that's, uh, that, that got triggered for me. But then the other part of it is, you talk about this dissonance between songs, and the, the thing that got brought up for me right away was the Beastie Boys, right? And like, <clears throat> that whole punk rock to hip hop to jazz funk groove thing that they would do, you know? Like on, a, on, on their <laughs> albums where they would literally move from like this, this little rip-roaring New York two-minute punk song to jazz funk groove to hip-hop. And uh, so I'm, I'm yeah. a little present to that kind of moving around in, in genre, that genre jumping. Well, and you know what? It sounds like a band that's been around for a while that's having fun experimenting. It, it reminds me a lot of the White Album, um, which, Mike, I think you struggled with for the very same reason. Like, the songs don't seem to fit together, and there's songs mm. that feel like they're just, like, making weird noises, and they call it a song. Um, and, and this feels something like that, almost like a band is jamming and, try, and you know, trying to come up with their next trajectory. This is a debut yeah, album, yeah. though, where they're where they're they're just right from the beginning are saying we're going to experiment and try and figure this out as we go um european sun stood out for me as well but not really because i liked it it just sounded like a jam session with my high school buddies like hey everyone check it out when i hold my guitar up to the amp this way it makes this weird squeaking noise i'm like and let's play along with that you know and it just that song in particular just feels like a band at its most raw, trying to make sense of like, uh, it's almost like they found themselves with music, uh, found themselves with instruments and thought like, what can we do? Um, in a way that I'm sure for the time felt uh, like, you know, st- you know, stepping out from a stage that the bass player stands here, the guitar player stands here, the haircut goes this way, the sound is these chords. Um, this must have just been like totally disorienting for the, the people in the late 60s who listened to it for the yeah, first time. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I'm present to is, as we, we talk about too, um, is, you know, Mike, you were talking about this kind of moving around too, is these sort of hippy-dippy, is that the one? Uh, is that the right phrase? Um <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, the, that's the that's how child. I the, uh, termed it. Yeah, but what I child. hear in that um, is almost that what you're talking about, Ben, is that that stretching, right? So this is a brand new band. They don't. This is their first album, right? Yeah. That's that's a crazy thing to think about on some level. Um, yeah. So you kind of yes, you absolutely. kind of put a femme fatale on there, right? Which is like it is arranged, it is orchestrated, it is in key. It is, uh, <laughs> right. It does all those things you're supposed to do. It checks the boxes for an yeah. appropriate song. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And then you put, and then you put black angels death song on there. Right. And so there's this, there's this thing where you kind of like demonstrate that you can do the thing. Right. And then you're like, and, uh, and then we're going to do this. Right? Yeah. Like get, get that, get that viola out. Mm-hmm. Let's do this thing. You know, it's going to get ugly. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't strike me as a protest album in an overt way but it gets to what uh reverend donna king was saying when we talked about marvin Gaye that that in uh music when you get dissonance it leads to unrest which can lead to uh to change and and it happened you know and that music dissonance can lead to social change then too um Mm. i think that's why this album becomes so 
seminal and inspirational for so many others. When you, when you have these sounds back to back that don't fit with each other, it takes your mind in a direction, um, that, that sparks something new. And, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I don't know what to do with it now. Like, <laughs> I guess that's mm. where, where I struggle as I listen through it. There, there are a lot of songs that I really enjoy. I also like, I'm waiting for the man. I like run, run, run. And, and even some of the hippy dippy stuff, I'll be your mirror, I think is maybe my favorite of, of those sort of slower moving tracks. Um, uh-huh. but I don't know what to do with them, uh, in this sort of unit of songs and and because i'm not currently a practicing musician i don't know what to do with that dissonance either i don't know (laughs) i don't know how to take that creative energy then and put it into something and maybe that's where i end up feeling just tense at the end rather than wow that was wonderful (laughs) yeah and maybe that's i mean i think the tension may be the 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 appropriate response right the intended response even maybe um yeah, I think there's a level where they're they're trying to create something off. You know, you're not Black Angel's death song isn't supposed to lull you to sleep, right? Like, <laughs> like it, but some of the others do. Right, 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 right. But like they they yeah. they they finish, they do. I'll be your mirror, right? And it's like they yeah. finish hard. You know, like uh, you know the the last yeah. two songs kind of come at you. And uh, heroin is is one of those songs. I I always enjoyed it, and I, it's funny because I was a straight laced kid, uh, um, and I still just you know there's something about that song being sucked in, even though it's like this incredibly detailed and explicit song about about doing drugs and how it feels and all that stuff, and this whole out this whole things about it. Yeah. Like there's something about it. There's just like like you were just there, right? Like yeah. there's a rawness to the to the the way it was written. You know, there wasn't any pretense, there wasn't any posturing like, hey, like I like doing heroin. Yep. Yeah, it reminds me of a movie that is so real that you you can't decide whether to turn it off and disconnect from that or just fully immerse mm. yourself in it. Mm. I remember that I was way too young when I watched Pulp Fiction for the first time, but I remember being yeah. so uh, drawn in by but especially some of the drug usage there and thinking like, I, I don't like this, but I can't stop watching. And I think these songs kind of do that too. They transport you in a way that is, that is powerful and jarring at the same time. Um, yeah. yeah. The, the thing that's present for me too, is you just bring that up, this idea of drug use and portraying it in like honest ways, right? Is, uh, yeah. this, 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 this is where, um, the pastor thing comes up, right? Uh, I think about how the church does such a horrible job of actually talking about stuff, you know, um, yeah. that like we just vilify all the things and then expect you not to do them. Like, like there's a reason, there's a reason why people do drugs. Like it provides a thing, you know, uh, yep. it, it does good things. It may have some, it may have some, uh, some side effects, right? But, but it does good things. Like sex, uh, sex feels good, right? Like, um, so like to just kind of not talk about it and just vilify sex, right? Yeah. It's this kind of disservice that the church does by not having an honest conversation. And I think there was something just so vulnerable and honest about this album. And that, <clears throat> that you know, there's no pretense, right? There's a certain visceralness to, the, to, to, to Lou Reed, right? Just... <laughs> Right. Just 
to Lou Reed, you know, uh, independent of like the Velvet yeah. Underground, like, and, and yeah, he he defined who this band was. I just remember this interview with him, and this was, you know, in the '90s probably. So he's got he's got to be a good 60, 50, 60 years old, right? This isn't he's an old young punk anymore. And somehow, like somebody brought up his dad. Maybe maybe the interviewer said like, uh, you know, did your your dad get you your first guitar or you know some kind of cutesy softball interview right and uh and Lou Reed goes my dad never gave me (laughs) 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 and and it's like that's this album right like yep (laughs) yeah 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 that raw honesty (laughs) you could just see the interviewer cringing right like uh uh yeah. Yeah. I finally now, got uh, an interview with Lou Reed and I just screwed it all up. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's why this album is hard to, to know what to do with because I think it would make sense if all the songs felt like that sentiment. You know, if, if all the songs were that sort of dark mm-hmm. place. Um, but it doesn't yeah. stay there. And that maybe that's the genius in it, that it, it sways us back and forth. Um in some ways yeah I think in some ways it would feel like a more cohesive thing that I knew how to package in my brain if they were all dark or if they were all hippy dippy Um, but we've got this weird dance between those two spaces as well I was listening to this album you know actually quite a bit leading up to our conversation here because I really wanted to you know give it my best shot and give it give it a chance and near the end, like in the last couple of days, I decided to go a little deeper and read some of the lyrics, which is not something I usually do and was something I was really trying not to do with this album because they're super weird. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I started reading them and, OK, this album, I'm imagining these people are so steeped in this very specific scene in New York in the mid 60s, which was really intense intense um a lot of drug use a lot of uh intricate social happenings and you guys might relate to this because you're both work you know in the church and in biblical circles i remember saying to somebody once you know i'm i really i want to get into the book of revelation i want to understand it more and someone said to me well first you're gonna have to spend a year in the book of daniel Mm. (laughs) and and i thought Man, I don't have a year to spend in the book of Daniel. I don't, I don't want to do that. Just tell me about Revelation now. Yeah. And I feel like this album, without fully understanding that scene in yeah. New York in that time, because as we started to dig into like the Black Angels' death song, which is a super visceral song uh, lyrically, there are so many. It, it's poetry, but it's it's just dripping with simile and imagery and all this stuff. And uh, all tomorrow's parties, we were kind of my wife and I were listening to it and reading out the lyrics, and actually looking at a few websites to try and pick some of it apart and get some of the oh. hidden meaning behind it. Starting to make starting to make a little more sense. It was all tomorrow's parties is any person in that scene who who can't ident can't figure out how to identify themselves, and they keep putting on other clothes to try and show themselves. Uh, try and dress themselves up as something they're not mm. and then at the end their clean clothes are always dirty and rags because mm. they just don't fit in 
And so I'm starting to understand the place where this album comes. So I feel like because I don't understand that era and I don't understand that scene, I can't really access this album. And that's not a criticism. That's just me where I'm at. And, 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 and it's interesting for sure. But it was super, super challenging to really get it. Um, and probably another reason I stopped reading Revelation. <laughs> I would, well, and, and the thing I would say, though, is I think that I don't think that what the, the lyrics to Altamonic Parties, right? I don't know that they necessarily push something specific to the New York 1960s scene, right? I think that, you know, like, right, right, like, it, but okay, it pushes yeah, yeah, something to a party scene, right? And that party scene uh, is something that, uh, uh, you know, good church boy going boys don't end up in, right? They aren't at the clubs. They aren't. Um, but I, but I think no. there, there's a reality of how, um, you know, for me that, that sort of, I think that sort of just resonated with me without me even thinking about it. Right. So, I mean, these, these, this, um, right. yeah, I think there, there is a level where it's a club scene and a club scene. I don't know if one existed, you know, I'm sure. Yeah. There's, there's been club scenes since, since Beethoven probably. Um, so, you know, just the kind of underground music scenes <laughs> sort of existed in these smaller chamber music, whatever. Um, so yeah, I would, uh, that would be my thought a little bit too. Is it, it, it may be more just that kind of underground scene where drugs were okay. And I mean, one of the things that the people right. talked about also is like David Bowie was massively influenced both by Velvet Underground and also by the scene, right? So there's this kind of, uh, a good bit of, um, androgyny uh that that comes out of this scene uh so yep. even that kind of how that spills over into this glam rock a thing that happens in, in over in the uk and uh how pieces of of this spill over yeah It was only in starting to look at the the album notes that I realized that there was a female lead singer. I think I just assumed that there was a uh, willingness to have a more effeminate sounding male voice. Um, there's like some something similar to uh, T Rex on this album, um, a band that I think is okay with a more effeminate sounding uh, male lead vocalist and. And I don't, and until actually clicking through the songs, I wasn't even sure which songs were sung by Lou Reed and which songs were sung by by Nico. And that is something kind of unique and amazing that they were able to push gender in that way that it all just kind of um, lulls you into the sense that it's the same band um, <clears throat> doing these tracks, but it's it's actually somewhat different. I'm coming at this too at a very intellectual level. Mm-hmm. Uh, angle okay and and that's that's me trying to figure it out and and that might not be appropriate all the time for for this song or any music whereas if you're just listening to it if if you know a 16 year old bob is listening to this um he's not listening to it necessarily at a intellectual trying to figure out all the history he's just experiencing it and so many people are just experiencing it and taking from and that's and music is great for that and i don't want to take that away from this because i think for the most part that's but but i'm just so curious because we're talking about this list and talking about kind of why are these albums great and where did they come from 
and why did the influence? Yeah. And I want to, yeah. I want to yeah. learn and I want to know yeah. what I can, but, uh, but it's, it's a tricky one for sure. And, and that does make it fun too. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing that, I, that I'm kind of intrigued by, too, the question that came up is, as you were sharing, Mike, about this idea of kind of intellectually approaching it and, and mm. how, like, 16-year-old Bob was <laughs> – he, he, thought, he thought too much just like 43-year-old Bob does. But, um, <laughs> but, like, at the end of the day, like, if you crank it in – if you turn your system all the way up, right, it, like – does it does it hit you in the chest you know like at the end yeah. of the day like when, uh, there's just this visceralness to it you know at the uh, that's the appeal of this to me you know when i when that when you i don't know if either of you in your kind of time of listening you know have kind of turned your stereo up loud enough to upset your significant other um you know <laughs> like in the listening of some of these different records and I, you know when i hear european sun like i just need to hear that loud, you know, like, and it's just sort of, it's, or even, or even waiting for my man or run, run, run. Like there's just this kind of, you know, when the volume's loud enough that you can actually feel the, the vibrations, um, there's something that pulls you in. That's a little different. I, I think it's the same way with like a, with like a Jimi Hendrix, you know, um, uh, that there's, there, there's just this virtuosity right on Jimi Hendrix. It's not, not part of Elf underground. And, um, yeah, that, but but there's still a visceralness to to Jimmy and how he does things. That it's just uh, that I think you get some of that in here too. I was fascinated to see that that um, you know I was looking at the context. You know this idea when people keep pushing. Well, it was 1967 and this this band, you, you know, Velvet Underground. This this album just broke. You know, I had to look at like, well, what else was released? And you know, the Jimi yes. Hendrix uh, first record came out and the the experience. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, you can't forget Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell. Um, so the thing that we keep going back to is the disjointedness, right? Like I, if I, yeah. you know, if I were to pick this album out, right, I would pick Waiting for My Man, Run, 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 um, Heroin, uh, Black Angels, that song, European song. I could, I could deal with like, I, I'd pay, you know, two thirds off for two thirds of the album. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and I wouldn't really, I wouldn't really totally miss, uh, the other songs yeah but as you go into like deeper into velvet underground's catalog as they develop i generally would argue that those songs are more clear prototypes for who they became Mm. but they're not they're not that raw right like they're not i mean you guys know like sweet jane is sort of this beautiful sort of um well you guys probably only know the cowboy junkies cover but like because you're yeah, younger. I don't know. I don't even know that. I'm, yeah. I'm really am new to yeah, this. I'm, yeah, I'm lost. So, <laughs> so, like, as you move into some of the deeper Velvet Underground, you know, the further along stuff before they broke up and all that stuff, um, you know, I feel like that stuff's a little more prototypical, but you still do get some of that kind of, you know, uh, rock and roll, hippy-dippy stuff, but it, it's, it's, it's sort of bouncing back and forth, but I feel like that... <laughs> that groovy that that kind of deep uh hearty groove but also the same thing like what you're saying is that um those those lyrics uh, also kind of end up being and that's that's always been lou reed's kind of you know thing right like just telling a story that not everybody wants not everybody knows but it's but it's but everybody's interested yeah you mentioned something there bob that that we haven't 
I don't think we explicitly talked about yet is that this album on our Rolling Stone Top 500 list is the first debut Ooh. album on the list, which I think is really interesting and significant. The other albums are maybe the the 10th or 12th or nth mm. released by that artist on the list. So we can see that some of the greatest albums are by artists who have, are well into their craft and now doing something that's okay, this is one of the best ever. And now right. we get to number 13. And it's a band that had never really released anything. Yeah. And and they just go and they... <laughs> they just... Uh, I want to say they just nail it because they didn't just nail it. They went and they <laughs> they, they did something. Created, <laughs> they did something, and it's totally unique. And and some of it yeah. we never heard before, right? And it's up here. And and I'm looking through the list, and and the only one other one anywhere close to it on the list that I can pick out is two albums later, number fifteen, is what you just mentioned again, the Jimi Hendrix Experience, or your experience, which was their debut album as well. But other than that. So many of them are not, right. you know, we got it the first time, yeah. <laughs> you know, like we, we nailed it, you know, and this and this. So I find that very interesting, especially for an album that's not, you know, as you brought up, it's not like, here's the verse, here's the chorus, everything is finally yeah. in tune, everything is structured, yeah. uh, that is not what this is, yeah. yet it obviously resonates, yeah. at least with the people who created the list, but we know just much more than that. Hearing you say all that, Mike, reminds me of listening to the Dylan albums that we've uh, had so far on this list, mm. and, um, and this dynamic when I listened to the Dylan albums was wondering how they would sound if they were a little bit more polished. You know, if the lead singer was a bit more in tune, if the instruments were tuned, if the, if the studio quality was better. And I wonder if, in this case, if that would make me enjoy the album more or if it would make it sound like a fairly mediocre release in the, in the last decade. Um, you know, is there something about the grittiness of this project that's that actually does better in a, in the sort of loose way that it was pulled together. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is, at, uh, unless they, these guys would all come back and record it again now, um, or if someone else would want to take that on. I, I don't know, but uh, it's just a random thought that was in my head. That would be a, a, a sidebar. Is you could take, um, you compare the Velvet Underground Sweet Jane, which is off of uh, I forget which album that's off of, and then compare that to the cowboy junkies version which is this incredibly perfectly polished thing right and uh and then you've got like oh, just yeah. the, the the rawness mm. i keep thinking of the word raw power you know like the iggy and the stooges album like just this raw power and um <clears throat> you know i think you hear that in Jimi hendrix right it was kind of and you hear that in this album like it's sort of the boogie he had the boogie in him and it, it's got to come out you know like and, and just, <laughs> you know that's what i hear in this it's just like there's just this force that needed to yeah. yeah to be released we've got a couple more chances with the velvet underground they show up again at 110 with the album loaded uh-huh. and then uh let's see where else number 293 if we get it that far <laughs> white light white heat uh-huh. And then uh, the Velvet Underground, 1969, coming at 316. Um, wow! So yeah, it's <laughs> they show up a number of times for a band that neither Mike nor I had really ever <laughs> yeah. listened to. Uh, we're gonna get a number of other chances. Is the production quality pretty different in all yeah, of those? They're, they're all pretty. Buff? They're all pretty raw. This is this is as raw as it gets. Um, 
Um, okay. And they're, 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 the the crazy the crazy jam session stuff like that's a little less uh, prominent. You know, it still happens, but it's not as not as wild. Yeah. Consider eighty percent of their studio albums are on this five hundred list. Yeah. <laughs> Four out of five albums that they did are amazing are here. So uh, s- strap yourself in, Bob. We're gonna have you back. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe we need to do a side uh, project where we take on the the fifth album since <laughs> we'll have to just to complete the yeah. complete the box set. Yeah, well, you know, if you're feeling this way about the, you know, if it didn't yeah. strike you with the first album, I don't know if you want to delve deep. I mean, like I said, I mean, there may have been a good amount of teenage angst that drew me into this album in the first place. Um, yeah, and you know, I have I, I share yeah. I share mixed feelings about my father with Lou, so I mean, we can we can bond in that way um (laughs) i will say i think i appreciate it just a little bit more every single time i put it on um and and that's not always the case Mm -hmm. with albums i you know there are some where familiarity makes it better but that doesn't always happen and for this one it is that i I think i enjoy i enjoy it each time i put it on so we'll see how that goes Um, i'm curious to see too if if there isn't something pushing me back you know now that this episode is complete uh will i continue to want to listen to it Mm. i don't know we'll see Uh, well i guess i mean i guess there is this place too where you can relate it a little bit to to techno um because it was a club scene right techno was a club scene techno was loud music uh loud bass heavy music in uh dark places right um so that's what these people were up to as well um you know just kind of you can hear in some of these tunes, these massively bass-forward um, songs, and uh, just kind of a driving beat. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess I, I feel that kind of visceralness uh, to it, and um, yeah, just sort of it's, it's as I, I I listen to. I mean, I've listened to it enough. I was like, I don't want to listen to it again. But yesterday, I was like, I might as well put this on if we're going to talk about it. And um, you know, I was I was I was. Uh, <laughs> Uh, sorting some things out while it was on but i i um yeah everything it does always like i kind of like wait through those uh i wait through you know i'll be your mirror femme fatale you know, wait for, them for the for the real stuff to come you know? right yeah that's so that's so interesting and and i love that and thank you for being honest about that. I love Bob that that's kind of, you know, you like the whole album, but really those are the ones like you just want to sink your teeth yeah. into and, and you're, you're desperate to hear them when you've got the album on, which, which is cool because sometimes it's not a whole album that mm-hmm. I want. I want just a piece of it or part of it, or, or yeah. maybe I want different parts at different yeah. times. But that's very, that's very there's cool. This, yeah. There, there's this um, moment I had, see techno is this very, um, Someone called it hedonistic, right? It's very like, I want all the things now. I just want the, uh, like I want it all, I want it intense, I want, right? And, and I was listening to uh, one of my favorite albums um, by Prince, which is his, um, it's called Parade. Uh, it's got a black and white cover. It's the one that Kiss is on. Um, but there's a song called Sometimes It Snows in April, um, which is awful because it's about a friend dying and Prince dies in April. And anyways, um, sorry, I, oh, wow. <laughs> Prince is Prince. I would call him Prince my favorite artist. So now I'm like, anyway, but he, oh, um, wow. but he does this, 
there's this moment. There's just this beautiful moment, right, in the song. We're just like, ah, it's so amazing. And, ah! and um, yeah, but it's just a moment, right? And 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 then you kind of you just left wanting, right? And um, so there's this beauty in experiencing that that conversation or that journey. And and techno uh, is sort of different because the idea is that the DJ is intermingling all these songs to take you on that longer journey. That's more like three hours than the five minute yeah. song, right? <laughs> but there's. Um, Right, but like in an album, right, and there's I still have a, an attachment to albums, and um, because there's just you know, you kind of you're giving yourself into this story that someone else is telling, and I can tell you guys have a passion for albums, otherwise, you do something ridiculous like uh, attempt <laughs> this project, right? You must have some passion for the album as a as a as a yeah. medium, not just a song, but for an sure. album, right. and um. And there's something, uh, you know, like uh, what I heard, Mike, in, in your comments was almost like, did they even think about doing an album? Like, did they just sort of like <laughs> make some songs and put them together and write like, did they did they not feel like splicing the tape into a different order? Yeah. You know, like, um, yeah, <laughs> um, just this level of like, well, could you just put the nice ones on one side and the rough ones on the other? And it's my um, OCD coming through. Yeah, and, and, and no, and it may, and I don't know, and that's, and we don't know, like we don't know that actual question, like why did, why didn't they kind of put like put like things together, right. you know? Um, mm-hmm. But there's something about that experience of, of, uh, of, be, of, of kind of allowing ourselves to be into that that moment that we, that we're out of control, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that, um, that we're we're kind of allowing someone to, to tell the story the way they want to. Oh, I love that. I, I really like that too. That's that's really neat. And there are times some of the tracks that are so real, they made me uncomfortable because I really felt that that someone was just letting go of everything. And and there are a couple of tracks more than once that I had to skip, and not because I didn't like them, but because it was just too much. Mm. Like sometimes I, I hear that with, you know, you said about techno, about this, you want everything all at once now. And there are times when it was, um, uh, I think, I think two, two tracks in particular, I know we've talked about the tracks, but two tracks in particular, uh, the black angels death song and Venus and furs with some of these droning sounds or screeching sounds that just seem to amplify and get greater. I've just, no enough. I'm, I, that's it i can't do it anymore um and not necessarily in a in a way i'm revolting but i just i'm just getting worked up by it because it's just too much and that's yeah Yeah. that's very uh intimate it's very personal Mm -hmm. and that is a as you're as we're talking through it that's something i'm appreciating more and more even in the last hour if we talked about it just the intimacy and the uh, transparency of the artists here which is is very unique. Yeah, uh, a word that a word that's come up a lot is is authentic, mm-hmm. and uh-huh. I'm really I'm really starting to understand that better. Yeah, that's good stuff. Man, we're going deep, deeper and deeper each time <laughs> with these. It's a, it's a deep dive. <laughs> okay, so well, let's transition here. So, a question that we ask, and and Bob, you've 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 written down kind of an answer here, which I really like. 
is the album still relevant? Mm-hmm. And, and I love your answer. I wonder if you'd kind of repeat it for us and explain it here. The, the idea that uh, authenticity is always relevant, right? Like the, the experience of humanity is the experience of humanity, right? Like the, the reason why <clears throat> I'm a Christian is because the, the story that the prophets and Jesus tell is exciting to me and it's relevant to me, right? Um, um, right. There's a, there's an authentic, there's, it speaks of the human experience and the human experience is the same, uh, even if we're separated by millennia. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think that, I think the authenticity is, is very much, um, helps it not be, helps it be relevant. I think that the, there's certain <clears throat> hippy dippy tracks that do feel dated. Right. Um, yep. But I don't. I don't necessarily think that they, uh, you know, like you, like you shared about the the lyrics to all tomorrow's parties. There's a certain relevance to that to any sort of oh yeah uh, clubbing partying scene or you know uh, socialite scene or whatever. You know, any sort of social network that people are trying to break into would would really fall into some of that. So. Mm-hmm. I think you said what I was thinking, but you just said it much more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were more articulate in the way you said it, but those were the tracks that I felt were relevant. Some of the grungier ones, some of the ones that were more raw. And it was the, that flower child ones that I felt were really stuck mm-hmm. uh, in the mid sixties. Uh, the other ones, I think you can hear that in, you know, you can hear it punk in the eighties. You can hear it in the post punk. You can hear it in grunge. You can hear it in some of the, you know, the, the indie rock, of the last 15 years mm-hmm. uh, that you still hear that the, the other stuff, you know, the glockenspiel, uh, you don't, you don't hear it as much. <laughs> well, maybe a little more now, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I think the, the parts of the album that you are wanting to hear uh-huh. are the ones that, <laughs> the ones that are still relevant. Uh, what about you, Ben? How do you feel on that? Yeah, I'm, I think, in addition to wondering how this would sound if everything was in tune, I found myself <laughs> thinking about, uh, you know, how many bands that I n- now love and enjoy, um, whether they realize it or not, were influenced by this, by this record. Um, and I mentioned T-Rex already as a, uh, at least one of their albums I really love. Uh, Nick Drake is an artist that, uh, you know, also had that ability to be raw and frank and honest, and mm, you know, so you know, and it's a bit of a tragic demise of his of his life because of all of that. Um, but even in the sort of loose structure to his songs, it drew me, it drew me to his music. Listening to this album, um, more more modern bands like the Arcade Fire and um, I guess Violent Femmes are a little bit older than that, but they both have that kind of driving force that you talked about, Bob, this sort of, um, you know, we're just going to get into a groove and push through these songs. And it doesn't matter if every note is perfect because we're going to feel something while we (laughs) perform this, uh, even if it's on the album. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's really, really cool to sort of go back and, and in the same way that it's been so enlightening to think about, my appreciation for MXPX now, you know, having other punk music in my music history repertoire, I think this album is helping me appreciate the the bands that I know and love that have come after it. Um, I think I don't have as much of a problem with uh, the more hippie sounding tracks 
because I think I'm drawn to some modern <laughs> artists that have some more laid back uh, kind of 60s influence hmm. as well. And I'm, I think I'm more convinced that the sound quality is what makes this feel dated rather than the, the music styling. I think that there's enough weirdness in, in indie rock right now um, that I think this would play pretty well. Uh, you know, artists like Sufjan Stevens and um, um, Father John Misty have this kind of weird hippie psychedelic feel at times. And, uh, and I think that there's something to that. And perhaps, again, maybe perhaps they were also uh, influenced as well. Um, I think uh, the thing that I, when, when I'm plugged in with that Arcade Fire connection, it made me think about um, all the music that's come out of the Northeast in the last decade and a half, two decades maybe, in that sort of indie rock scene. And I think, I think the Velvet Underground would fit right in if they were... Um, playing in that same space today um, because a lot of it is sort of experimental. Um, you know, you see guys playing their electric guitar with a violin bow and, you know, just mm. holding weird dissonant chords for a long time and kind of screaming over it because that's the emotion that they want to project, not necessarily because it sounds really good. So, so I think actually it's more relevant than I thought it would be given its cover and given even my first listens with it where I didn't know what to do with it. I think now I feel like it's actually more timeless than I, than I originally thought. Cool. <laughs> now about this next part that we uh, get to, uh, oh. was it sound logic to put this album at number 13 on the Rolling Stone top 500 album list? That's where I'm struggling a bit more um, because I don't, I don't think most people know it. And, and I think there has to be something about popularity that goes into a list like this. I love it for its influence and I love it for its authenticity and rawness. Um, but it just has too much enigma and mystery uh, and obscurity for me to think that, that this is the, that there are only 12 albums better than this one uh, <laughs> in yeah. music history. Um, I don't know. What about what about the two of you guys? I'd probably bump it down um, if I was given the choice. I'm, I mean, uh, you know, to have one of your kind of rock out teenage jams uh, up up pretty high, you know, like it, it, for me, it's a certain affirmation of the the experience I have, right? right? Sure. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know how you pick. I mean, at some point, I look at like how many uh, Beatles and Bob Dylan records are in the top 20. And at some point it just gets ridiculous, right? Like um, at some point it's just, <laughs> it's just, um, you know, uh, you can't, you can't uh, name 500 records and then put one artist, you know, all, all in the top 10, um, so to speak. Like there's kind of this weirdness about it that, that uh, gets sort of, so, so I have, I don't even know what they're so I don't know what their logic. I don't know what they were trying to intend, right? Like if at some point you're trying to say like, well, mm -hmm. this is the most important album, this is the 13th most important album, that's different, you know. Um because I, I think about mm -hmm. the way music influences, right? Like yes. how um you know, um you know, as as I was in this techno scene in the nineties, 
making all this ridiculous, these ridiculous noises with keyboards and drum machines and into the 2000s, right? And then, and then here I am in like 2009, 2010, and, and um, like almost all hip-hop had started using those type of noises, right? Um, noises that we uh, had kind of created in this sort of techno scene had somehow bubbled up, you know, or transferred over. Somebody heard it in the club and then they said, oh, uh, right. And so this kind of idea of influence and how that happened and who brought what to which, like, it's just such a convoluted trail in the, in this kind of, uh, this kind of family tree of music. And it kind of goes back and forth. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's some hip hop heads who would be offended to hear that, you know, the, the producers in 2000 had started listening to techno, but but at some point, you know, that's that was my observation. We're making these crazy new noises, and all of a sudden, five years later, <clears throat> and I think you see that same thing yeah. happening, right, with the with the with the Velvet Underground, like these this these noises, these song structures, these right, these different things that were um, in this album that looked totally different, right? That you know, ten years later, they're just kind of conventional, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, so it is. It's hard for us to process the this so yeah as we put it on a list of like the top 500 albums i mean i I have that's just a crazy thing to create so it's hard for me to even (laughs) yeah you know like to to kind of process how you how you do that and how you um you know put those things together so totally so you mike yeah i struggle with it uh, at this spot Uh, one thing that we probably don't do enough is kind of looking at an excerpt from Rolling Stone's articles about these. And, and I just want to pull a couple things that Rolling Stone wrote about the album in this, in this list. Uh, just a couple little tidbits here. It says, um, it is a record of fearless breadth and lyric depth. Uh, singer songwriter Lou Reed documented carnal desire and drug addiction, decadence and redemption with a pop wisdom. He learned as a song factory composer, for Pickwick records. Um, and at the end it said, uh, it was rejected as nihilistic by the love crowd in 1967, but it is also the most prophetic rock album ever made. So you get this, again, this dichotomy. And so we've discussed many different problems with this list or problems that we see in, in this 500 list. And one of them is, it seems an urge or a directive by the people putting it together to put albums that represent either an artist, a song or a period and put that album there, not to represent the album itself, to represent mm-hmm. that thing that they want to represent. Right. And right. I think what they're doing here, and I don't necessarily disagree with it, but what they're doing here is they're putting this album here for the things it represented and the things it influenced years down the road, which don't get me wrong, it's very significant. But as an album, I just really struggle. I think if this showed up anywhere between 40 and 80, I would have no problem because I would I feel like I'm gonna get to albums in that period that go, What's this? and start researching it and listen to it, go, Oh, that's pretty good. Oh, and I can really see how that okay, yeah, I see its place here. But I struggle with that they're only again, as you said, Ben, that yeah. there are only twelve albums ever made. If we take the list literally, the name of it, it's only 12 albums ever made ever that are better than this in terms of right. popularity and listenability, et cetera, et cetera. That's where I struggle. And, and we've talked before that I'm, 
I'm a little more legalistically minded <laughs> when it comes to those things. Um, mm-hmm. So that's where I struggle with it. If it has to do with influence, then yeah, for sure. But if it just has to do with the album, then I would see it a lot lower. Uh, that, that's kind of where I'm at. But I, well, and you're still bitter that Dark Side of the Moon is all the way down at 43. So uh, I was really hoping you wouldn't bring that up. <laughs> because um actually i'm gonna do that episode by myself just so i have a whole hour to rant (laughs) Uh, because uh yeah and okay how come you know this this is more influential in their mind than all the things that happened on 1973's dark side of the moon and that sure. that album that went on to be on that album was on the billboard for like 40 years um you know for sales yeah. you know so so again there's i see problems with the list all of that being said i get why it's here i understand why they would they would put it here and uh, having listened to it and hear the stories bob hear your experience with it um as someone who grew up you know, 20 years later. Um, yeah, I see, I see its place here. Personally, I'd put it lower, but that doesn't mean I'm right. <laughs> we really appreciate you taking the time here, uh, with us tonight, Bob. We know we've kept you quite a while here now and, uh, and we really appreciate your insight and your input and, and all of that. It, it's been great. Well, uh, thank you for having me. You bet. You bet. Um, we will need some help with the other uh, Velvet Underground albums, so consider this sure. an open invitation to to be back on the show at some point uh, if we make it that far. Yeah, we'll, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll call you in four years. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, I know <laughs> you're uh, now. I know, like, you're basically just going to make it to to Dark Side of the Moon and call it. I mean, I'm, I can I can see that that's now. Right. Like that, <laughs> that's got to get there. Got to get yeah. there. That's the only reason I started the project. it's gonna get to 43 and then we're done (laughs) bob it's been a pleasure to have you here and uh and really great to have your insight as as a a, someone who authentically really enjoys this album and grew up with it i really appreciate your insight yeah thanks thanks no it was was good to share and good to talk about it music's always been a a real blessing in my life and uh, so it's just uh it's good to talk about it now and again awesome well, next time we uh, we we've got another album, right? <laughs> What's Def- up next, Mike? Definitely. Uh, we hope you join us next time when we discuss album number fourteen on Rolling Stone Magazine's top five hundred album list, which is Abbey Road by the Beatles. I think we've even got a guest for you that time as well. We do have a guest, and and yes, Bob, you're right. This is this is at least the fifth time we've talked about the Beatles so far. It's got to be rough. See, I mean, it's, it's just. It may, I bet each one gets shorter. You know the. Uh, all right, there's four Beatles, and they wrote songs, and then sometimes there's a fifth Beatle. Well, yeah. Uh, you would think that that was true. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, shameless plug, there's only one way to find out. <laughs> I think actually the White Album was our longest episode to date, and it was num- number four of those uh, first four Beatles albums. So, Uh-oh. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, 
on Instagram or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.